Hello everyone, welcome back to Your Story. I'm your host Ian Kath, this is episode 73. Yeah, 73, but it could be episode 1, because this is the restart of Your Story. Available at yourstorypodcast.com, where you can get all the previous 72 episodes if you want to listen to them. It's also where you can listen to the previous addendum episode, episode 30 of your story, where I explain what's been happening these last three years, where I've been, why I've been away, and what I'm looking forward to in the future, and how I'm going to be going about doing a few things. I'd love to hear from you. There are a few different ways that you can contact me by going to the site and checking out the contacts tab in the top navigation bar. You'll find all sorts of ways of getting hold of me. Yeah, that can be through email at chat at yourstorypodcast.com, through Twitter, if you just search for my name, Ian Kath, on Twitter, you'll find me, or by contacting me through the Facebook fan page. If you look up Your Story on Facebook, you'll be able to find that, along with all the previous episodes and other little bits and pieces I find interesting along the way. It's also where you can get the links to subscribe in iTunes or in your own personal preferred podcatcher. It's always nice for you to leave comments, whether it be for me, for other people visiting the site, or people on iTunes, so they understand what the show's about and what you think. Love you to leave some sort of message for other people who might be poking around. Also sharing these stories. If you find any of them interesting, share them on Facebook. Send them an email. You can even copy it and share it with them. I don't mind. I put everything under Creative Commons. I think everything's to be shared. So share away. Like I said, I've been away a long time. And nearly three years ago, I sat down and I recorded a conversation which I've been wanting to publish for a very, very long time. Now, I have a little bit more information about this conversation at the end of this episode. So hang around because there's some very important information right at the end of this story. But I was sitting on this for nearly three years until I've been able to get around to publishing it. And the reason I recorded it initially is because I'd heard these whispers of an interesting life, a life that I knew beyond what I knew of him, with his music and his dancing. Something about architecture and something significant about architecture. And I didn't quite know how to make sense of it. He's definitely a larger-than-life personality, certainly no shrinking violet. And I thought, yeah, there's a good chance he'll sit down and have a yarn to me. So we sat down at his home and we had this quite long conversation about migrating to Australia. And I do love migration stories because it says so much about the people as individuals. Why they came out from Europe in the 1930s and how both being a migrant and his parents' style led him on to achieving the things that he achieved in his life. His motivation, his passions, his reason for excellence, both in architecture and his violin playing. And at nearly 80 years of age, 
I find it fascinating that somebody can still be so vibrant, so full of life, so motivated, and so engaged with living life when most other people are just slowly winding down, aren't they? That's why I wanted to sit and listen and hear Moshlo's story. My name is Moshlo, Moshlo Shaw, but it used to be Marek Horzewski. He came to Australia in 1935, actually it was 1936. And I remember my father was complaining because he said no one can, can pronounce Horzewski. They kept on saying Chorzewski, so he decided the chore should become sure. Smart. Very smart. He heard the phonetics of what the Australian accent was trying to achieve right. and just tweaked it to something exactly. that worked. Because yeah. I think Shaw is an English name, isn't it? It is. It's very much an English name. But of course, you have to remember also that um, it became very clear to become as English as possible and to merge in with the general population. Mm. I've never felt happy with it, but. I don't think I can go back to Horzhevsky. I don't think that it's going to work. Here. It's, it's funny, and your accent is almost British. Well, slightly, because I've, I've lived in so many places. Yeah. yeah. What year did you say you came out again? No, I was born in 1935. We, uh, I was nine months old, so it was actually, it would have been September of 1936. Okay, so just before the wars, where'd you come from? Where'd the family come from? Well, there was a small uh, township called Chenstochova which is uh, very close to uh, Warsaw, uh, Warsaw Lodge, L-O-D-Z Lodge, which is a very big centre of Poland. And Krakow, it's in that region. But it's a very famous city because there's a virgin there called the Black Virgin. Pilgrims come from all over the world to see this Black Virgin. As and in I, like the Virgin Mary? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, the Black Mother. We shall see. Right. We'll see what makes her black. Yeah. That would upset certain religious groups and all that sort of thing. Yeah, well, I mean, in this case, it's worked well for Chenstochova. <laughs> so why did your family leave? And come? And, and why did they come to Australia, of all places? All right. When there are uh, so many other countries to go to? Interesting story. I think they left uh, mainly because of the economic situation. I mean, really, life in Poland, uh, from what I gather from my father, was very, very difficult. He wasn't uh, an educated man. He was actually a tailor. The outlook for him and, of course, for me, his child, wasn't going to be very good. So um, he desperately wanted to get out. I think the second thing, of course, was the political situation. Now, my parents were Jewish. I'm Jewish. I must say straight away I'm not in any way religious. and It's just the luck of the draw that I became born a Jew. It uh, really doesn't affect me one way or the other. I've got no allegiance to being a Jew. But so you're I mean, ethnically Jewish? Ethnically Jewish, right. Yes. So, and of course, Jews weren't well treated in Poland, as you well know. Mm. Of course, at that time, things were looking very, very dark for Jews anyway, generally. I mean, no one could have foretold the, the tragedy that was about to, to happen. So I think that the first issue really was to find a place where they could prosper. Everyone had this notion of the three A's, America, Argentina 
Australia. And in fact, my father wanted to go to America, but he couldn't get any sponsorship. And then Argentina wasn't all that uh, attractive because that just seemed to be a little bit too exotic. And we had an uncle here in Australia, obviously made it good because uh, he kept coming back to Poland uh, dressed, uh, you know, like a toff. Used to brag that he owned a bank in Australia and he drove a Buick. So my father said, well, um, if my uncle can do it, then we can do it as well. Anyway, he sponsored us and we came out to Melbourne. Uh, and that's how he came to Australia. And did he own a bank? And did he drive a, a Buick? No. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. No, actually. Well, he lived very well. Uh, he drove uh, a little, uh, I remember it was a black Ford. And um, I mean, even then, uh, having a car was quite exceptional. But in fact, he was a moneylender. <laughs> Right. Okay. <laughs> but he was a moneylender in a very lovely way. Uh, a lot of Jews that came out from Poland were tailors. And they had um, a situation where at the beginning of each season, they needed an injection of money to buy material. And so they would go to him. His, na his name was Fete Nuchem. I, I saw this because I, I was young then and my father went to him. Laser, that was the name of my father. He would say, how much do you need? And Dad would say, oh, probably about 5,000 pounds, whatever it was. And Fetanuchum would take out this little crumpled notebook out of his pocket and he'd write, laser, 5,000 pounds. Close the notebook, put it back in his pocket. And that was it. That was the deal. Nothing else said. Money was given to him. And at the end of the season, when he'd made the money, he'd pay, pay the, back. the guy back with the commission, of course. And that's the way he made a living. And that was the sort of like the in-bank of, of those people. No questions asked. Everyone knew everybody else. Mm. You know, you didn't have to prove your, your credit rating or anything like that. And it was a closed community. It was a closed community. Yeah. And God forbid if anyone didn't pay the, the, the money back, that, that would have been a, a disaster mm. for them. So it was built on trust. Mm. And I thought it was a good system. Mm. <laughs> and obviously, Fatanulchen had done pretty well out of it as well. Your father just saw the writing on the wall and yes. wanted to get out. Yes. He, did he have any trouble leaving Poland? Were there any restrictions at that stage? I don't think there were any restrictions. They had to pay a lot of money, I remember. they. But no, I don't think there was any problem. Right. And he came out first, and then he brought me and my wife, and, and his wife. Actually, he came out at the beginning of '36, So he's in Australia for nine months before my mother and I came out separately. And the idea was to bring the rest of the family one by one. But of course, that didn't happen. I mean, uh, I think within a year or two, the, the wall had come down, the embargo started, and, and none of the family survived. Well, actually, I mean, we did have a few survivors, but of the, of the big family, I think only a handful survived the war. So two mm. years later, the, the Nazis invaded. That's right. Um, and they would have started locking things down oh, yeah, at that point. Absolutely. Did the Poles lock things down before the Nazis? Was there any restrictions from the Polish government before the Nazis no, invaded? No, I don't think there was. Okay, Look, so I'm up until sure 39, that, yeah. there was the chance for people to come out. Yeah, as long right. as you had 
as long as you could pay your way, I, yes, yes, and you had you know the papers to 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 uh, emigrate to somewhere, and you could pay right the amount of money that was required to get out of the country. And your father's strategy was to get the rest of the family out through into the 40s, but unfortunately they couldn't because the Nazis right. had the place locked exactly, down. Exactly, yeah. 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 And then everything started from there. And so they ended up as part of the persecution of the Jews in the Warsaw Ghetto and all that? Well, a lot of them uh, perished. Uh, we don't really know where, but they would have been shipped off to camps somewhere. Mm. Uh, the, the few survivors that did come back, and they stayed with us actually in 1946, I had um, two uncles and two aunties that came back. They were the only ones really that came back. And they had been, one of them had been in the Warsaw Ghetto, the others had been shipped off to uh, uh, to work in camps and... Um, right, so they survived camps. They, they, yeah. they didn't manage to avoid the Nazis and stay no, in the countryside. No, they were in camps. I mean, they were very lucky. They, they were very lucky. obviously uh, able to work and managed to um, escape. I had one uncle who told me a terrifying story. He said that, that they were in a camp and then they could actually hear the Russian guns in the, in the distance and they knew that, you know, the Russians were coming and there was panic everywhere. And then finally, um, the Germans, uh, at the last minute, uh, took all the survivors from the camp on a death march. You know, they're trying to march them away. And of course, it was a ruthless situation because people were falling by the wayside and they were immediately killed. And then it became clear that the Russians were, were, were too quick. They were, they were behind the Germans, so the Germans decided to liquidate everyone. And they were, <clears throat> my uncle included, they were put into some sort of a big barn and the barn was set on fire. I've heard this story. Yeah. Yes. And uh, I think he said there were about 2,000 people in, in that, that barn. It was a huge barn. It was set on fire. And if anyone escaped, uh, they were just machine gunned. And he said only maybe, you know, 20 or 30 people escaped. He was one of them. Uh, and one of his horrifying uh, tricks, if you like, was... I'd be sitting, because we used to have our Friday evening meals, and then he'd recount endlessly this terrible story about how they were in this barn, it was on fire, people were screaming, you know, the machine guns were going outside, and he managed to, to get out with a, f a few others, and they were shooting at them, and, and they managed to get in, they managed to get away. Oh, so a miracle. He, so he ran through the machine gun fire, basically? Yeah, and I mean, managed to escape. And then he'd sort of rip his shirt open, and I could just see all these terrible burns on his body because he was burnt badly. And he'd, he'd sort of look at me and I was, uh, I was eight or nine years old and he says, you see what they did to me? You see what they did to me? Don't you let this ever happen again. Don't you ever trust the German ever again. And I'm cowering away thinking, mm. what have I done to deserve this? <laughs> Very disturbed people. Yeah, yeah. Understandably. understandably. Yeah. But anyway, I mean... Did, did he migrate here to Australia? And they all did, the family. Yeah, the, so they... They, they, they all came out, yeah, yeah. And they lived their days out here. Yeah. During the war, I went to school the... Whereabouts? In Melbourne? In Melbourne, right. yeah, yeah. In Elwood. The playing field outside the state school had trenches. They dug trenches in there. We had to do trench duty. Mm. Uh, trench... I didn't know that. I didn't know they built slit trenches all the way down in Melbourne. I definitely here in Brisbane and North Queensland, yeah. but I didn't think they went yes. all the way down to Melbourne. Absolutely, they, they were. They were quite convinced. Sooner or later, the Japs come, 
And then, I mean, we, uh, as children, we had no idea what was going on. We had to line up in the, in the school playground, and they had a fife band. I mean, it was like convict days, you know, they had kids playing the fife and the drums going, dum, dum, dum. we had to march, single file, whatever it was, down the trenches. And then they said, now, you know, when we blow the whistle, you just have to crouch. And we were crouching, wondering, what is going on here? And then, when you hear the whistle, you can get up, and you can just march out again. We had to do this every day. Really? <laughs> really Mind you, if you, if you had have had you know, zeros flying over the top with machine guns going off, you would, yeah. it would have all made a lot of sense. Absolutely. Yeah. But it was a very strange situation. Out of the childhood memories of people who lived through those times, my yeah. father and mother are a few years older than yourself. Yes. They were born in 33. And Dad tells a story of being on the farm outside Dolby absolutely certain that one day he was going to see Japanese come over the back hill and march through the paddocks. Yeah. He was absolutely certain it was going to happen. Yeah. You know, this is just the psychology. You know? Incredible, isn't it? So anyway, my father uh, was a very skillful tailor. He was drafted, because he had very bad eyesight, he, had short, he was short-sighted, otherwise he would have been drafted into the army, um, because he became a naturalised Australian fairly quickly. But he was drafted to work in a factory, you see, in those days, you, you had to work for military purposes, and he, he was making nurses' uniforms for American nurses. And he was amazed because he said they were given all the fabric and, and the specifications were very precise, and he said the workmanship had to be really of the highest order, and he's, that was where he was for most of the war. It all helps the war effort, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, well, I had to yeah. do that. That's right. My father was a heavy smoker, I remember, and and I remember there was a huge black market in cigarettes and he'd bring home these contraband cigarettes. And there was sort of like a, a, a black market going on, you know, you, you could buy chocolates and things like that. And my recollections of, of the wartime that, you know, there were some special things that you could get if you knew the right people, mm. if you had the money to pay. <laughs> Did you think of yourself when you were a child, a teenager in those years through the 40s as an Australian or an Australian Pole or a Pole? How did you see yourself? Well, the thing is that um, there weren't that many uh, foreigners in Elwood at that time. It was actually a predominantly, I think, Irish Catholic. The school that I was in was, you know, working class kids. And there were only maybe seven or eight foreigners there. So we were immediately sorted out, I mean, in the sense that either we were spags, and then I don't know how they found out, but they knew there were some Jews there as well. And I, I was one of them, you might have guessed that I was Jewish, whatever, but we had a lot of problems with bullying and that sort of annoying, really terrible things. I mean, you know what kids are like at school, they'd sort of say, we'll get you after school, you know, you better go home, you, we'll get you, you know, we'll beat you up, you dirty old Jew. And I remember running home many times with the pack of kids running after me. It made things very difficult. Mm. Of course, my poor mother was beside herself and she couldn't speak very well. So she couldn't understand it. And she just said, you see, you see, this is what happens. You see, when you're Jewish, you get it in the neck, whether you're living in Poland, even here, you, you get it as well. I did feel very much apart from the other kids. So I wasn't part of them. And then on top of it all, my parents, wanted me to play the violin because my grandfather played the violin 
And I didn't mind. I loved music. I, I actually started to love it very much. It was um, something that I took to very quickly. And that was a bad move because, I mean, basically, when they found out that I was playing the violin, I was a sissy, you see. Mm. I wasn't... Playing football. Playing football and cricket. And not only that, I had a teacher, a German teacher. He forbade me to play sports. He said, look, your hands are precious and you mustn't play cricket and football. You know, that's for the... That's for the... The, the brutes. Yeah, the brutes. But you're, <laughs> you know, you're cut up to do something better than that. So that made it very difficult. And I lived very much apart. There was one guy there... Izzy was one of my friends. He looked very Jewish, he had a big, big nose, and he was very, very thin, small little guy. And of course, he was the one they picked on because he was the most puny one of all, see. When he uh, got older, uh, became very entrepreneurial, and he started Jet Set Travel. He's, oh, really? He's the boss of Jet Set Travel. <laughs> now I thought to myself, now, that's a very symbolic thing to do, you know. Now he's got his aeroplanes waiting. So if anyone chases him, you know, he can just jump on his planes. Yeah. But no, that, that was the situation, and I think that that marked me. I could never quite understand why I was being singled out. But of course, I mean, we were not Australian. And of course, you know, we had situations where parents were invited to come to some function or some situation, and my parents, of course, would come along. And it was very clear that they were not Australians, mm. and they were sort of set aside. So I think I felt very much alienated in, in one way. And back in those days, back in the 40s, Australia was very much an Anglo society. Very much. Yeah, you know, the, the great migration of the oh, yeah, no, post-war no. era was, it was yet to happen. It was very much yeah. so. Yeah. And then, uh, I mean, as I got older, it, that even became a little bit more extreme because after the war, my father, of course, was very ambitious and he set up his own factory and very quickly he became quite successful because he was a very hard worker. I mean, sort of discipline of getting up early in the morning and coming home late. And of course, Australians didn't do that. They just didn't understand that culture of working that hard. And I remember that at the end of the year, we would have the Christmas party in the factory in Flinders Lane. That's where all the little factories were. And it was always amazing because, of course, in those days, trade unions specified that if there was uh, an industry like that, there had to be a certain predominance of Australian workers and there had to be a certain ratio of Australians to foreigners. Now, of course, there were some Greeks there and Italians and, and other Polish people working for my father and then there were the Australians. It was a bit like the United Nations in a way. And then at Christmas time we'd come and all the Aussies would be there at one end of the room. They'd have these big kegs of beer and they'd be, you know, knocking off the beer and having great tubs of prawns. I mean, this is something that we don't ever do. My parents never did that. I don't think I ever tasted a bloody prawn in my life. And then, of course, all the Italians and the Greeks were sitting at one end of the factory, you know, having their, their bread and their sausage, and the other guys at the other end were knocking down these prawns and saying, hey, come on, mate, come and join us, come and have a beer. And, you know, reluctantly everyone would sort of try. And So, you know, there was always mm. this sense of, of them and us, mm. unfortunately. Mm. I mean, it's not so bad now, of course, obviously, no. the whole thing's changed. But in those days, it was certainly very Anglo-Saxon, very white Australia. And, and you were in Melbourne, which was ethnically the richest part of Australia at that time anyway. Well, it was. I mean, certainly after the war, there was a huge uh, migration, but it was difficult, I think, for migrants for a while. Mm. 
Um, also, you bring up an interesting thing, which I um, always like to reference to, is that I think migrants, by definition, have a strong work ethic. And I think it's migrants in every direction. I think Australians who go to France to live are strong and hard workers. I think to be a migrant, to go to another country for a better life, and to burn your bridges behind you means that you will work hard. Well, it's a matter of survival. Yes. For my yes. parents, it was a matter yes. of survival. But there were other imperatives. One thing was that my father was, neither my father nor my mother were educated, and they really wanted to give their kids education to make sure that me and my brother, because I, I had a brother then, that we would have the very best opportunity, you know, that we go to the university and hopefully we'd become lawyers, doctors, whatever. Mm. But we'd, do, we'd be able to do everything that they couldn't do. Of course, my father, I mean, he was too much of a workaholic. I never saw him, unfortunately. Must say, I very rarely saw my parents just sitting and doing nothing. Even if they were sitting, listening to music or whatever, or talking, they were busy knitting or, or sewing or doing something. And yeah. they'd always do the same with me. They'd say, Morris, you can't just sit around do, doing nothing. You've got to do something. Yeah. And that became sort of and, a... And that starts because there's a desperation but it continues even into when somebody's affluent, they can't stop. They can't stop. No, it <laughs> can be a curse. Never, never enough, unfortunately. So but, you went uh, on to uni? I was playing the violin. I went to high school and did the university. I did the whole... What uh, age did you start violin? So I started about seven years old. Okay. In a way, my parents wanted me to play music, but they didn't want me to be a professional musician because they knew that that possibly wasn't the best. And so basically they said, look, we'd like you to play the violin, but please become a doctor or a lawyer and everything will be fine. Then you can play music and do it whenever you feel, and then you've got a good solid career. If there was a calamity, you'd always have the money to save yourself and your family, you see? Yeah. If there's a calamity, meaning like life in Poland yes. in the 30s, and we exactly. had to get out. Yes, exactly. See, it's the lesson they learned. I, I, I think. And frankly, if they had gone to Argentina, oh, that would have been a good lesson for you because you could have acted on that in the 70s when things started to go pear shaped. Oh, God, yes. Fortunately, they came to Australia well, when it wasn't did. a problem. Absolutely. Yes. My parents were very anxious, and that anxiety was there all the time, even though. I mean, they had a very good life, really, they had a fabulous life, considering where they came from. There was still always an edge of anxiety that things would somehow, some calamity would occur and we'd be back in a bad situation. And considering what they came from, that's yeah. entirely understandable. Well, they had generations of that, yeah, and that was right. drilled into them, and they yeah. were trying to drill the same into me yeah. as well. The poles got shafted for centuries. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So that was the story. So, so, anyway, you went, so you went on to uni? Yeah, I went on to uni and then I did extremely well in architecture and, and I found that it was, uh, it actually segued beautifully with my music. Sort of felt that it, it had the same creative component to it and the same amount of inspiration, really. So I did very well. Architecture and music, Moshlo? Oh, well, I Explain can... how they sync together. Well... There's a certain order in music which, um, I mean, many people say that, you know, when they listen to J.S. Bach, they just see this magnificent classical building, you know, with its great edifice. There is a certain order in architecture and, and music that seem to be very aligned with each other. In architecture, you've got this concept of space. It's not just matter, but you've got a spatial realm. And the way that space is put together and the flow of space 
is very similar to, to music, you know, the way spaces relate to each other and, and the volumes and things like that. Um, I just found that I could think, I could think the same way when I played the violin as I did in architecture, except that I just had to use different skills to translate that into some definite form. What I loved about architecture is that, you know, the whatever you created, you could, you could see because it was, you know, it was a building you could go back to. Whereas music, of course, is so ephemeral unless you record it and just keep playing the recording over and, and over again. And as we discussed before we started recording, music that is live is different to recorded music. So exactly. it truly is ephemeral. It, it vaporizes the yeah, moment well, it's played. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, all you're left with immediately after you've played is just the memory. Yeah, a whereas building, the building is there. It's there. Yeah. I mean, sometimes... Mind you, there is a... There is something in the process of building that is lost once the building's finished. Well, yes, of course. But and, and there's something beautiful in the construction process too, absolutely, which, yeah. which is all hidden behind all those. I know, yes. Things. Well, that's it. But I found that the, the two aspects of creativity—one being ephemeral, the other being, if you like, very material—really suited me very much, and I enjoyed it. So I kept playing the violin while I was studying. And I've never really given up the violin. So has the violin always been a, um, a hobby, a passion, an amateur pursuit, or have you actually played well, in, professional, no, semi-professional? I, mean, I, I have played in semi-professional ways, but I've never been in a position where I had to play. In fact, I played in the Australian Chamber Orchestra for a very brief period of time, and I could have easily gone into professional music because I had the technical facility to do that. You know, there's a difference between playing for fun and, and playing because you have to. In fact, if anything, you have more time to do it than others. I mean, it's very hard to, for me, for instance, to play chamber music with professional musicians, they're too busy or they're too tired and they don't want to play anymore. Whereas, you know, you get a good amateur and he's always keen. And that's what I found really quite wonderful mm. about having those two professions. So tell me about architecture. I've heard rumours, and this is one I want to dig into, that oh, you, okay. you did fairly well for yourself, but I don't know the detail. <laughs> okay. um, I did very well because I was very good in design. In fact, I was getting prizes every year. I just had a, a great imagination, and I found it very easy to dream up all sorts of designs. It was a very interesting time in architecture in, in the 60s because um, there was a, a strong push to try and find an Australian form of architecture, something that was uniquely Australian. And uh, there were a lot of very good architects then. At that time there were a lot of uh, small offices, maybe two or three people, and they were all doing individual designs for individual people. And that's what really, I wasn't into commercial architecture at all, domestic. That was the thing that really interested me very much. Just very quickly, I mean, I finished my uh, course and I did extraordinarily well and then I had to spend a year working in an office to get my year's experience. At that time I was very interested in drawing so I used to go to drawing classes, sketching, yeah, right. nudes and things like that. I met this Polish guy, he was uh, about my age, he was a, another survivor from the camps, I mean it was a remarkable story, he was a teenager in the camps and he was very strong and, and he managed to, to survive the war lost his parents and he ended up in Melbourne and he became a fitter and turner and he lived in an artist's community just outside of Melbourne. He wanted desperately to be a painter and an artist. 
and he had 30 acres of land, which at that time you could buy for next to nothing out at Eltham. And he asked me if I'd design a house for him. And this was going to be my first commission. I said, yes, of course I'll design a house for you. I said, sure, I'll do it. I knew a little bit about this guy. His name was Leon. He was manic depressive and he, he was a little bit mentally uh, unstable and he'd been out, in and out of mental home. Also, could be very charming, very friendly. Uh, the other drawback was that he didn't have much money. I mean, it would have been the same as someone coming to me now and saying, look, build me a house for $10,000 or something ridiculous That's like not that. a little bit of money, that's no money. That's no money. I sort of said, look, Leon, I, <laughs> I just don't think I can get very far. But then he said, look, uh, I'll, you know, I'll get all the labor for you, I'll help you, and we'll, we'll make it out of mud bricks. You know, I, I make mud bricks there. And that was an, an area where they used a lot of mud bricks. Mm. And then he said, look, you can buy recycled material for next to nothing. In fact, sometimes you can just go to a building site and just give you the material. I'll, I'll, I'll try this adventure. My real interest was to try and make a building that was a, a portrait of Leon. It was a very original design. It was based on his personality. and It was really a reading of, of him. And I divided the house into two space, two basic areas. One were sort of little caves where when he felt really depressed and very uh, wanted to get into a womb, he could go into these enclosed areas. And then the rest of the house was very open. I became very excited with this design. I designed it very simply. I said to him, look, I'd like to build this. I'd never built a house before, but I really want to build this. You know, I want to be there. Despite the fact that the firm that I wanted to desperately wanted me to stay with them, I said, no, I'm quitting. I'm going out to live in the country. So I went to live at Eltham. They found a little cottage for me. It was, we were living very roughly. It was just a, like a barn, actually. It was just a single room. And I remember every night we'd go out. I mean, everyone did this. We, I had a 22 gun uh, rifle and we'd go out at, at dusk and we'd shoot a rabbit and we'd eat <laughs> rabbits every night. Rabbit stew every yeah, night. Every night. Fresh from the paddock. Fresh from the paddock. You know, you'd shoot the rabbit and you lift the thing up and make sure it didn't have mixo because if they had mixo they had these huge eyes. But if the eyes were normal, you'd take the bloody thing home and skin it and you'd have rabbit. So I lived very roughly. And it, it was fun. I mean, you know, it was like the rest of them, I was sort of pioneering. And I built a very, very remarkable house out of mud bricks. I was very inspired. It, does this building have a name? Is it, yes. Are there photographs online? Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. It's, it's called the Cottles Bridge House. Things started off very well with Leon. He was very helpful. And he was working very hard with me. And But two-thirds of the way through, Leon had a downturn. And one day I was working and Leon turned up with his rifle. We all had rifles. He said to me, I'm, I've had enough of you. I don't want you here anymore. Piss off, I don't want to see you. I mean, this was a shock to me, absolutely. And I said, listen, Leon, the house isn't finished. He says, I don't care, just get out, get off. Don't want to see you again. And I was incensed and I said, listen, you know, I've been working on this for six months. I'm not gonna leave now. I'll go, but I'm, I'm going to finish this house first. And so I didn't see much of him at all. He didn't want to have anything to do with me. But I went and finished the house anyway. It took me another two or three months to finish it off. 
And when the house was finished, it became immensely famous. I mean, it was just, a, it was a fluke, I don't know, but it was immediately published in three international magazines in France, in America, and I think in, in Germany. Three big international magazines published it, because it was quite a, an amazing place, really. And of course it was published in Australia as well, and in a way my reputation was, was made overnight like that. How old were you? Oh, about mid-twenties at that time, because actually I didn't start university. I had a, a, a two or three years off playing the violin before I started the university. So that was a pretty remarkable thing. And I decided then with, with that sort of publicity that, hey, you know, I've got to go overseas and, and, and capitalise on this. I thought of going to London, but then I thought, well, I've got this major chance in, in Paris, you know, it was on the front cover of uh, Architecture d'Aujourd'hui, which is sort of a very prestigious magazine. Well, okay, you know, it just seemed like it was a much um, more interesting possibility. So I left and I went to Paris. At that time, Leon and I, of course, were not on talking terms, and I heard that as soon as I left, people from Melbourne began coming up in droves to look at this weird, strange house, you know, it became sort of like the thing to do. And it was in the countryside in Eltham, and they used to drive up there and... Uh, Leon, of course, then became the custodian of the house and he became very proud of the fact that he was living in this amazing house and, and who knows what he said, you know, I, I probably... It was his house then? It was it? his house then, of course. And, I don't, you know, I thought it was great. Leon was always very jaded because he was the only person in that community, artist community, that had to make a living through some menial ways. He was a fitter and turner. He suddenly realised, oh gosh, all these people are coming up. I think I'll, I'll build a kiln. And he started to throw pots. And lo and behold, he built himself up a, a very nice little cottage industry. And um, I believe that within a year, he, he was generating enough money over the weekends for him to retire. So changed his life in a way. When I heard that story, I thought, this is quite remarkable that a house can actually, a building, can change a person's destiny. Because if he wouldn't have had this thing, if he wouldn't have had this amazing building, he'd probably still be a fitter and turner. And, you know, he'd be unknown, but he suddenly became well-known. Oh, let's go and see Leon in this amazing house. In due course, I got back to see Leon and, and we made it up and, and he apologized for, he said, look, I, you know, I was pretty well off my mind and I'm taking medication now. <laughs> so, I've sort of settled down a bit and he apologised but he said look he said you know this was the most wonderful thing that you could have done for me and and I said to him well in a way you deserved it because you had a, a, a shocking and horrible life it was a great thing for you and it changed your life but it changed my life too because it put me on the map mm. so to speak mm. so anyway I went to Europe and I spent five years away uh, I spent three years in New York working there yes of course I you know, I worked in big offices and got a lot of experience, but in many ways I realised that possibly that wasn't really the thing that I wanted. I, I didn't want to become a commercial architect. I didn't want to do big buildings. I didn't want to do big concrete buildings. And that my skill was really more domestic work. In fact, I wanted to get a green card and uh, I went to see an attorney. He said to me, well, he said, you're not going to get a, a green card as an architect. He says, we'll have to look at the 
at the list of categories, you know, the ones that, that are, are needed for this country, and, you know, looking down, atomic scientists, da-da-da-da-da, this, that, that. And he said, can you do this? And I said, no, I can't do that, I can't do that. And then finally comes to, jockey, Morris, he says, they need jockeys here. You're an Australian. You're going to be a jockey. And I said, <laughs> don't be ridiculous. I've never ridden a bloody horse in my life. Morris, just go home and write me a CV. He said, get married and write a CV and I'll get you the green card and it'll cost you $5,000, you know. So I gave him the $5,000. Got married the next day. Civil ceremony, they were marrying probably about two or three hundred people at a time. You know, you walked into this great, wonderful building and there was a little booth there, you had to pay your money. Of course, it was like going to the pictures. And then they'd usher up the next 30 people and we'd walk up this great staircase and we'd walk into the office and they'd do the ceremony in five minutes. We'd sign the certificates and that was the end of the thing. And then we'd turn around, we're going to go out the same way we came in, down the beautiful staircase. No, 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 um, that's the exit over there. And we walked to the other end of the, the hall and there, there was this terrible rickety metal staircase going into this bloody alley in the back of the theater. Like the fire escape? Yes, the fire escape full of bums. Just, you know, they've obviously got a sense of humor up the back. Yeah, up the level stairs to the dream and then out the back into out the reality. Back to the reality. It didn't work. All the papers went in. I was only allowed to be there legally for one year, but I was there, had been there for two years illegally, like so many others might, might I add. And then, of course, the letter came back. He's got seven days. And if he's not out by seven days, we deport him. And I said, well, what am I supposed to do, Charles? And Charles, Morris, he said, you've got to appeal. I said, Charles, how much is that going to be? $5,000. And I said, forget it. <laughs> I'm getting out of here. <laughs> so that's, and that was it. I, I got out of New York and um, came back to Australia. Thanks to the house that I built in Melbourne, I was offered a job immediately at Sydney University as a lecturer. And I loved uh, coming back to Australia. It was a very interesting time. It was actually the beginning of the Whitlam era and Australia was a very exciting place then. And Sydney was a fantastic city. I loved it. Compared to New York, New York was great, but it was very dangerous. Again, um, because I was a lecturer, that more or less allowed me, gave me the money to indulge, I suppose, in in beautiful projects. So I did three very, very significant projects and got a lot of publicity for that. And the last one I did was um, a house on Scotland Island, which became very well known. It was the Wave House, built out of tubular metal and a very, very beautiful design. And that was written up everywhere. And I... But unfortunately, because in those days, you know, you spent hours and hours standing and working at a drawing board, I developed very severe back problems, excruciatingly bad ones. When I was building this building for Leon, I fell off the roof. Oh. And I injured myself quite badly. I, I crushed a couple of vertebrae. I became virtually a cripple. I didn't want to be operated on, and I'd, I'd met another person, and I started to, I must say, in retrospect, I wasn't looking after myself. I was living, you know, I was sort of working too hard, like my father. It was a family thing, just working day and night. You know, I was lecturing at the university, I was I had my little private office. I was also playing the violin as well. So it was sort of a mad life. I wasn't well. I met this lady and she was a yoga teacher and she said, look, 
I'm sure that I can help you overcome your problems, but you'll have to spend a fair bit of time doing yoga. I said, okay, I'm going to take a year off, and I left the university. And that's how I came to Queensland. Suddenly, you know, I was in this sort of wonderful place, Badrum, and mm. doing yoga every, and, you know, going swimming every morning and living a completely different life. And I thought, wow, this is fantastic. And then I got offered work at, at UQ and QUT. University of Queensland. Yeah, part-time. So how did the yoga work out for you as far as your back? Oh, absolutely fantastic. I must say, I had to work hard. It took me three, uh, three, four, five years to completely, well, I won't say it's cured because I've still got a problem with my back, but I've never had problems since right. with uh, sciatica. The fact is that, you know, when you become middle-aged, then if you don't start looking after yourself, then your body starts deteriorating. And I mean, most people can manage that. I already had a bad injury, and so that was a weakness in my body. So, in a way, I had to address all of that and renovate myself. That was basically it. I had mm. to start on that track. And I mean, it stood me in wonderful stead then because I changed my diet, I lost weight, I started doing a lot of exercise, I used to go to the gym, I did yoga. And from then onwards, I mean, my, the whole foundation for my life was of a, of a different order. And now, I mean, I'm 77 and I'm, I'm incredibly fit and, and healthy. Yeah, and it's worth, mm. because this is an audio podcast, I'll put some photos and maybe video or whatever I can find of you yeah. so people can have a look at you. But it's worth explaining that. Okay, how tall are you? Oh, I'm, I'm uh, five foot nine, five foot ten. ten okay, yeah. and you weigh? About 63, 60, okay. 64, yeah. Yeah, so you're, and you're very agile, you're very yeah. light. Yeah. You're, um, we know each other through tango. Yeah. and. Uh, the moves that you do in tango, people my age can't do. Yeah. And it's because, I dare say, yoga has had a lot to do with oh, it. Oh, tremendously so, yeah, yeah. For a man of your age, mm. you can out, you, you behave like a bloody 30-year-old somewhere. Yeah. 30-something. No, no, no. I mean, my body's, uh, I could say that my body's working at, at its peak uh, for, for, you know, for what it can do, mm. obviously. But I'm very flexible. I'm very limber. I've got a lot of energy, I've got a lot of strength. So really, um, I'm, I'm actually operating at peak efficiency, mm. if, if you want to put it that way. And, and I'm glad that I've done that. Because, and the reality is at mm. 77, if you hadn't done this, what, 20, 30 years ago? Oh, look, I'd be a wreck. You'd probably be dead. Well, I probably would be. Because you would have yeah. had other problems would have developed on top of it. Well, that's right. And it would have put you I in mean, the grave. I mean, most of my family, my uncles, they, you know, they all had heart attacks and hmm. they became obese and, yeah. you know, they were stressed and hmm. so forth. And then diabetes kicks yeah. in and all the other stuff. <laughs> yeah, we got, we got a mob of crows up in a... Up in one of these trees around here. But you get that. <laughs> They've got to get their word in. So, yes, no, no, I, I would say that, you know, there have been some very uh, important, pivotal moments in my life. And, of course, doing that house for Leon was one of them. So I'm very grateful for that. Even the things that were wrong with it, mm. the no money, the fact you had a mental illness, the fact that you fell off the roof, all the, these things are actually cascaded in very positive ways for you, ultimately. Oh, absolutely, yes. I heard the story of Frank Lloyd Wright designing Falling Water. Yes. And the story goes he was commissioned to do it and he sent his surveyors out to survey all the rocks mm. on the property. And he sat on it for months. Yes. And the client asked for the, to see it and he kept avoiding the client. 
and then the client said that he was going to turn up tomorrow and there wasn't a drawing. Mm. And Frank Lloyd Wright went to the board and started mm. and he drew all night. And it almost reminds me of what you were saying about the violin. You're, you practice, you practice, you practice until it falls under the fingers. Yeah. He was, what people have interpreted is he was practicing the house in his head. He was mulling over it, how he was going to position everything. Yeah. So when it came time for him to perform on the board, yeah. the pencil just flew. Well, and just, by yeah. morning, yeah. there was a full set of drawings for the client. Yes, well, no, I, I can... And it I, arrived I complete. From, yes, yeah. no, I, I understand that. It's just getting it together. And people do it in different ways. But yes, I mean, I can, I can absolutely agree with that. Um, and of course, it turned out to be one of his greatest works, oh, Falling Water. Yeah, yeah, and it's, it's still... Uh, still considered to be an amazing masterpiece. Yeah. Well, lucky he, he had a very good client, Mr. Kaufman, who said, listen, I'll give you as much money as you need and as much time as you, as you want, and, and I believe in you. And your story with the House for Leon was the exact inverse. In you, a way. You were sacked, he had no money, and right. you had phenomenal restrictions. <laughs> so, you know, if there's, an if there's an architectural student going, I've, I've, got, I've got to have the perfect client or the bad client. No, you just have whatever you've got and you work with it. Yeah, well, that's exactly right. And Frank Lloyd Wright wasn't a young man when he designed that either. He'd been around no, a long time, no, whereas he, you were a novice. Yeah, well, I mean, that was the luck of the draw for me, but it's just one of those extraordinary events. I knew while I was working on the house that this was, I mean, nothing had, like that had ever been built before. And, and like you said, back in the 60s, there was a lot of innovation, a lot of yeah. very smart buildings around mm. Sydney that uh, still have open houses because they're iconic buildings yeah. from those times. Yeah. Are some of your buildings those? Well, I'd say the, the Cottlesbridge House is certainly an iconic building. I think the Wave House is iconic. Um, that was very influential. I'm, I'm quite sure of that. Yes, I think those two houses, well, whenever I'm, when I, when I'm seen as an architect, Oh, Maurice Shaw, yes, um, you know, Wave House, uh, Cottlesbridge House. So it's almost like another life to mm. me because I'm, I'm in a different phase of my life. But it's lovely to feel, you know, that you've sort of been recognised for something. And also it's going to live on long past you. Those buildings will probably be restored and re-restored for several hundreds of years. Well, I hope so. I've got a few of my sculptural elements <laughs> floating around <laughs> Brisbane here. And it's nice to know that those bronzes or aluminiums are going to be here long after me. It's a little bit of immortality for all of us. Well, it is. And this, yeah, this recording well, will be captured somewhere deep in the archives of the internet. Well, we might even have it in some sort of time capsule somewhere. Well, it is a time capsule. It is. Capsule, the the internet it? is a time capsule. It is. It yeah. is absolutely right. Just apropos of what yeah. you're saying, that my girlfriend at, at the time when I built the Wave House, it was published in the Los Angeles Times, and someone bought me, you know, this sort of very glossy weekend magazine. They said, take a look at, take a look inside. I said, well, I mean, what do you mean take a look? And I opened the first page and there's this amazing photograph of the Wave House. And I said, wow, this is incredible. You know, they'd sent out people to, to check out Australia and someone had said, listen, you can go and photograph this amazing house. And, and it was published over there. And but anyway, my girlfriend said to me, oh, well, she said, you don't have to do anything else in your life now. You know, you're famous. You can just, you know, you can just coast along for the rest of your life. And I thought, well, I guess that's true, but that's just not me, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I've just got to keep going. Tell me about the CD you made last year. 
Well, I heard this very haunting music. It's actually called a doina, D-O-I-N-A. And it's actually music that comes from the Balkan region of Europe. That's, it is a lament. It's very sad music. It really affected me. It's, it's played a lot in gypsy music, in Jewish music, in Bulgarian music, uh, in that whole region. And I started to track it down. Um, I suppose maybe I realized that it was very similar to some of the lullabies my mum used to sing me when I was very young. And generally those lullabies were quite sad ones. They were Jewish lullabies. It hooked me back into something that was very much a part of my Jewish heritage. So I went to stay in Berlin, with, which of course, as you know, is a wonderful city. And there I studied this music and I recorded this doina. And uh, it was a very significant recording. I think it's the best thing I've done. I'll give you a CD, by the way, and you Thanks. can listen to it. Um, and that album was just released very recently. So that's put me onto another stream of music. I'm now looking at, at lullabies, Polish-Jewish lullabies of that era. Might I say the reason I'm going back to Poland now, because I've never been to Poland apart from those first few months that I was born there. And it's not just curiosity, but there's something important. It's like um, at this stage in my life, it's like a, a puzzle. Where does it all fit together? My grandfather used to play the, the violin. That's why I'm playing the violin. My grandfather circumcised me. My, my grandfather was uh, a rabbi, put a few more parts of a jigsaw puzzle into place. But I mean, the other reason I'm going to Europe, of course, is that I'm also now playing with a Spanish singer who sings habaneras. Now, this is more a tango link. And habanera, of course, is the, the basic rhythm of tango. Dun, da -dun, dun, dun, da -dun, da -dun. Well, basic rhythm no longer anyway. And um, we've become very good friends. I've got a feeling that um, there will be some connection there. So I really do look forward to this very, very much, very much indeed. Boshlo, your life I knew was going to be interesting. <laughs> well, I mean, it's a life, isn't it? Well, yeah, and we all have, we all have lives that are, and they're mm. all interesting to us. Yeah. But your life I knew was going to be interesting to mm. us. So thanks very much for coming on oh, our God, story. It's, it's a pleasure, honestly. And as I say, we'll do part two when I've come back from Poland. See you on the dance floor. Yeah, indeed, yes. Yeah. So I'm going to be dancing in Poland, that's for sure. <laughs> thanks, Moshe. Please, And Moshlo did have a great trip to Poland catching up on the sights, the culture. That wasn't really part of his life, but he had a connection to through his family. And just a couple of weeks ago, before publishing this story, Moshlo passed away, six months short of 80 years of age. To the very end, before the very short illness that he had, he was active and vibrant. I've never known a person to be as active as he was at his time in life. We could all be so lucky to live a life fully right up until the very end as Moshlo.
eight million stories in the naked city. This has been one of them.